This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story by Eudora Welty called Where is the Voice Coming From? I says, Roland, there was one way left for me to be ahead of you and stay ahead of you, and I'd just taken it. Now I'm alive and you ain't. Where is the Voice Coming From? was chosen by Joyce Carol Oates, whose book reviews, fiction, and poetry have been appearing in the magazine since 1994. Joyce Carol Oates is the author of many novels and short story collections. Her latest novel is called My Sister, My Love, The Intimate Story of Skylar Rampike, and it's published by Echo Press. She joins me from a studio in Princeton, New Jersey. Hi, Joyce. Hi. So is Eudora Welty someone who's meant a lot to you as a fellow writer? Absolutely. I began reading Eudora Welty when I was in high school, and I was just mesmerized by her ability to write so beautifully, so lyrically, and at the same time as in this story, so powerfully. And what was it that that most struck you? Was it the subject matter or the style? I've read a number of Eudora Welty's stories in which she uses voices. It's a way of writing that I like very much myself. The voice in this story is her most extreme, masculine, percussive, mean, vicious, thug voice. <laughs> she has many voices that are quite lyric and and rather feminine in the best sense of that word, mm-hmm. poetic and, and metaf- using metaphor. But in this story, all that's really completely pushed to the side and a very different kind of voice comes forward. In the story, Where is the Voice Coming From? It was inspired by the murder of civil rights activist Medgar Evers. Evers was killed on June 12, 1963, and the story was published less than a month later in the July 6th issue. Do you you remember reading it when it came out? I may have read it when it first came out. That's quite possible. I think the story is that Eudora Welty wrote it immediately. She wrote it like overnight. She wrote it the night of the killing. Yeah, and that the idea, where is the voice coming from, may also apply to the author. The author is experiencing one of these wonderful experiences that we all yearn to to have, where a voice seems to come to us. The story is told from the point of view of the murderer. So as we listen, we need to imagine you as this very thuggish southern white man. Is there anything else that we should be listening for? There is a subtext of metaphor. He starts talking about how hot everything is and that he can't touch anything. And so we sort of feel that his life is entering a phase of a kind of hell. He has committed an irrevocable act. He thinks on the surface that it's a good act because he's a white racist. But on another level, he's being dragged down a hell. All right, we'll talk more after the story. Now, here's Joyce Carol Oates reading Where is the Voice Coming From? by Eudora Welty. I says to my wife, you can reach and turn it off. You don't have to sit and look at a black nigger face no longer than you want to, or listen to what you don't want to hear. It's still a free country. I reckon that's how I give myself the idea. I says I could find right exactly where in Thermopylae that nigger's living that's asking for equal time, and without a bit of trouble to me. And I ain't saying it might not be because it's pretty close to where I live. The other hand, there could be reasons you might have yourself for knowing how to get there in the dark. It's where you all go for the thing you want when you want it the most. Ain't that right? The branch bank sign tells you in lights, all night long even, what time it is and how hot. When it was quarter to four and ninety-two, that was me going by in my brother-in-law's truck. He don't deliver nothing at that hour of the morning. 
So we leave Four Corners and head west on Nathan B. Forest Road, past the surplus and salvage, not much beyond the comeback drive-in and trailer camp. Not as far as where the sign starts saying, live bait, used parts, fireworks, peaches, and Sister Peebles, reader and advisor. Turn before you hit the city limits and duck back toward the icy tracks. And his street's been paved. And there was his light on waiting for me, in his garage, if you please. His car is gone. He's out planning still some other ways to do what we tell him they can't. I thought I'd beat him home. All I had to do was pick my tree and walk in close behind it. I didn't come expecting not to wait, but it was so hot, all I did was hope and pray one or the other of us wouldn't melt before it was over. Now, it wasn't no bargain I'd struck. I've heard what you've heard about Goat Dykeman in Mississippi. Sure, everybody knows about Goat Dykeman. Goat, he got word to the governor's mansion. He'd go up yonder and shoot that nigger Meredith clean out of school if he's let out of the pen to do it. Old Ross turned that over in his mind before saying him nay, it stands to reason. I ain't no Goat Dykeman. I ain't no pen. And I ain't asked no Governor Barnett to give me one thing unless he wants to give me a pat on the back for the trouble I took this morning. But he don't have to if he don't want to. I done what I done for my own pure D satisfaction. As soon as I heard wheels, I knowed who was coming. That was him and bound to be him. It was a right nigger headed in a new white car up his driveway toward his garage with the light shining, but stopping before he got there, maybe not to wake him. That was him. I knowed it when he cut off the car lights and put his foot out, and I knowed him standing dark against the light. I knowed him then like I know me now. I knowed him even by his still listening back. Never seen him before, never seen him since, never seen anything of his black face but his picture, never seen his face alive any time at all or anywheres, and didn't want to, need to, never hope to see that face and never will, as long as there was no question in my mind. He had to be the one. He stood right still and waited against the light. His back was fixed, fixed on me like a preacher's eyeballs when he's yelling, Are you saved? He's the one. I'd already brought up my rifle. I'd already taken my sights. And I already got him, because it was too late then for him or me to turn by one hair. Something darker than him, like the wings of a bird, spread on his back and pulled him down. He climbed up once like a man on the bad claws, and like just blood could weigh a ton, he walked with it on his back to better light, then to get no further than his door, and fell to stay. He was down. He was down, and a ton load of bricks on his back wouldn't have laid any heavier. There on his paved driveway, yes, sir. And it wasn't till the minute before that the mockingbird had quit singing. He'd been up singing up my sassafras tree. Either he was up early or he had never gone to bed, he was like me. And the mocker, he'd stayed right with me, filling the air till come the crack, till I turned loose of my load. I was like him. I was on top of the world myself, for once. I stepped to the edge of his light there, where he's laying flat. I says, Roland, there was one way left for me to be ahead of you and stay ahead of you, by Dad, and i just taken it. Now I'm alive, and you ain't. We ain't never now. Never going to be equals, and you know why? One of us is dead. What about that, Roland, I said. Well, you seen to it, didn't you? I stood a minute just to see would somebody inside come out long enough to pick him up. And there she comes, the woman. I doubt she'd been to sleep, because it seemed to me she'd been in there keeping awake all along. It was mighty green where I skint over the yard getting back. 
that nigger wife of his, she wanted nice grass. I bet my wife would hate to pay her water bill and for burning her electricity. And there's my brother-in-law's truck still waiting with the door open. No riders. That didn't mean me. There wasn't a thing I've been able to think of since would have made it go any nicer, except a chair to my back while I was putting in my waiting. But going home, I seen what little time it takes, after all, to get a thing done like you really want it. It was 4.34, and while I was looking, it moved to 35, and the temperature stuck where it was. All that night, I guarantee you, it had stooped without dropping a good 92. My wife says, what? Didn't the skeeters bite you? She said, well, they've been asking that. Why somebody didn't trouble to load a rifle and get some of these agitators out of Thermopylae? Didn't the fellow keep drumming it in? What a good idea. The one that writes a column every day? I says to my wife, find some way I don't get the credit. He says, do it for Thermopylae, she says. Don't you ever skim the paper? I says, Thermopylae never done nothing for me, and I don't owe nothing to Thermopylae. Didn't do it for you. Hell, any more I do something or other for them Kennedys. I done it for my own pure dissatisfaction. It's going to get him right back on TV, says my wife. You watch for the funeral. I says, you didn't even leave a light burning when you went to bed. So how was I supposed to even get me home or pull Buddy's truck up safe in our front yard? Well, here another good joke on you, my wife says next. Did you hear the news? The NWACP is fixing to send somebody to Thermopylae. Why couldn't you wait? You might have got you somebody better. Listen and hear him say so. I ain't but one. I reckon you have to tell somebody. Where's the gun, then, my wife says. What did you do with our protection? I says, it was scorching. It was scorching, I told her. It's laying out in the ground in rank weeds, trying to cool off. That's what it's doing now. You dropped it, she said, back there. And I told her, because I'm so tired of everything in the world being just that hot to the touch. The keys to the truck, the doorknob, the bedsheet, everything. It's all like a stove lid. There just ain't much going that's worth holding on to it no more, I says, when it's a hundred and two in the shade by day and by night not too much difference. I wish you'd laid your finger to that gun. Trust you to come off and leave it, my wife says. Is that how no count I am, she makes me ask. You want to go back and get it? You're the one they'll catch. I say it's so hot that even if you get to sleep, you wake up feeling like you cried all night, says my wife. Cheer up, here's one more joke before time to get up. Heard what Carolyn said? Carolyn said, Daddy, I just can't wait to grow up big so I can marry James Meredith. I heard that way I work, one rich bitch to another one to make her cackle. At least I kept some durned teenager from North Thermopylae getting there and doing it first, I says, driving his own car. On TV and in the paper, they don't know but half of it. They know who Roland Summers was without knowing who I am. His face was in front of the public before I got rid of him, and after I got rid of him, there it is again, the same picture. And none of me. I ain't never had one made, not ever. The best that newspaper could do for me was to offer a $500 reward for finding out who I am. For as long as they don't know who that is, whoever shot Roland is worth a good deal more right now than Roland is. But by the time I was moving around uptown, it was hotter still. That pavement in the middle of Main Street was so hot to my feet I might have been walking the barrel of my gun. If the whole world could have just felt Main Street this morning through the soles of my shoes, maybe it would have helped some. Then the first thing I heard him say was the NWACP done it themselves, killed Roland Summers and proved it by saying the shooting was done by an expert. I hope to tell you it was. 
and at just the right hour and minute to get the whites in trouble. You can't win. They'll never find him, the old man trying to sell roasted peanuts tells me to my face. And it's so hot. It looks like the town's on fire already, whichever ways you turn, air street you strike, because there's those trees hanging them, pones a bloom like split watermelon. And a thousand cops crowded everywhere you go, half of them too young to start shaving, but all streaming sweat alike. I'm getting tired of them. I was already tired of seeing a hundred cops getting us white people nowheres. Back at the beginning, I stood on the corner, and I watched them new baby-faced cops loading nothing but nigger children into the paddy wagon, and they come marching out of a little parade and into the paddy wagon singing. And they got in and sat down without providing a speck of trouble, and their hands held little new American flags, and all the cops could do was knock them flagsticks loose from their hands and not let them pick them up, that was all, and give them a free ride. And the children can just get them more flags. Everybody... It don't get you nowhere to take nothing from nobody unless you make sure it's for keeps, for good and all, forever and amen. I won't be sorry to see them brickbats held down on us for a change. Pop bottles, too. They can come flying wherever they want to. Hundreds all to smash, like Birmingham. I'm waiting on them to bring out them switchblade knives like Harlem and Chicago. Watch TV long enough and you'll see it all to happen on Deacon Street in Thermopylae. What's holding it back, that's all? because it's in them. I'm ready myself for that funeral. Oh, they may find me, may catch me one day in spite of themselves, but I grew up in the country. May try to railroad me into the electric chair, and what that amounts to is something hotter than yesterday and today put together. But I advise them to go careful. Ain't it about time us taxpayers starts to calling the moves, starts to telling the teachers and the preachers and the judges of our so-called courts how far they can go? Even the president so far, he can't walk in my house without being invited like he's my daddy, just to say, whoa, not yet. Once I run away from my home, and there was an ad for me come to be printed on our county weekly. My mother paid for it. It was from her. It says, son, you are not being hunted for anything but to find you. That time, I come on back home. But people are dead now, and it's so hot, without even being August yet. Anyways, I seen him fall. I was ever more than one. So I reached me down my old guitar off the nail in the wall, because I got my guitar, what I held on to from way back when, and I never dropped that, never lost or forgot it, never hocked it but to get it again, never give it away, and I sat in my chair with nobody home but me, and I start to play and sing a down, and sing a down, 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 sing a down, 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 down. Down. That was Joyce Carol Oates, reading Where is the Voice Coming From by Eudora Welty. The story was first published in The New Yorker in 1963 and can be found in The Collected Stories of Eudora Welty, published in paperback by Harvest Books. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant 
that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Joyce, why do you think Welty chose to imagine this killing from the perspective of the murderer? The victim is obviously much more sympathetic. Well, that's a good question. I think the murderer is the one who has acted. We don't really see at all this person whom she calls Roland Summers. It's the feeling maybe that of excitement or kind of transgressive elation that an author feels like when Shakespeare was creating Iago or Edmund and King Lear, that these are precipitating agents who unleash evil, but they also unleash a story. Why do you think she used the first person for this character? She could have used the third person and somehow kept herself a little more distant. She has a number of stories that are first person. And using the voice is very intimate and very raw. Virginia Woolf said that once you get the voice, then you can write. Mm -hmm. It's hard to get the voice. In this case, Eudora Welty immediately had the voice. So she wrote it very quickly, and it was a thrilling experience, I'm sure, for her. Had she put it in the third person, she might have had to labor at it for, you know, three weeks, six weeks, whatever. Flannery O'Connor's stories required months and months of labor. When you read them, you wouldn't think so. Mm -hmm. But she could spend six or eight months on a short story. She almost never, maybe never, I mean, she almost never wrote in the first person. As you mentioned earlier, the title may actually be some kind of internal reference of Welty asking where... Yeah. Where the story came from, I've never. I can't think of any other story where the where the title is, is the author reflecting to herself rather than titling the actual piece. Well, I think it also refers to the voice of the man. Like, where is he coming from? He's coming from your own town. He's coming. He's, mm-hmm. He lives two streets away from you. So maybe something like that. I have a passage here that Welty wrote about the composition of the story. I'll just read it to you. That hot August night, when Medgar Evers, the local civil rights leader, was shot down from behind in Jackson, I thought with overwhelming directness, whoever the murderer is, I know him, not his identity, but his coming about in this time and place. That is, I ought to have learned by now, from here, what such a man intent on such a deed had going on in his mind. About that character's point of view, I felt, through my shock and revolt, I could make no mistake." The story pushed its way up on the same night the shooting had taken place. At the New Yorker, where it was sent and where it was taken for the immediately forthcoming issue, William Maxwell edited it for me. By then, an arrest had been made in Jackson, and the fiction's outward details had to be changed, where by chance they resembled too closely those of actuality, for the story must not be found prejudicial to the case of a person who might be on trial for his life. So the amazing thing is that she felt she knew this murderer, and she was right. Just amazing. And she probably knew him very well. He probably was one of her her groundsmen or when she takes her car to have it repaired, an auto repair, it's one of the one of the repairmen. One thing that's interesting to me in the story is obviously there's racism at play, there's racial bitterness. But also there's what seems perhaps slightly more important here is is this class bitterness. The narrator seems so angry that he's driving his brother-in-law's truck and, and Roland has his own new car. Yes, you know, a white car. A, a white, white car, exactly. White car. And she gets, she gets so much sort of sociological complexity into two pages. 
Yes, I think in 1963 that was particularly powerful. Mm-hmm. Today we would say, well, yes, of course, it's a race thing or a class thing, but I think at that time maybe it was more bringing news to, to white America. A lot of your stories also seem to respond to current events or to violent events. What's the appeal of pulling these very ugly things from the real world into your fiction? Well, I'm not sure they're always ugly. They seem exemplary in ways that that may be tragic and even ritualistic. Writers are drawn to drama. It's not a sense of political correctness or incorrectness or being nice or being nasty, but somehow illuminating the human experience, which is often dramatic and and sometimes very cruel. I mean, most of Homer, the beauty of the Iliad and the Odyssey, is really quite qualified by the brutality that's going mm-hmm. on simultaneously. In a way, Homer's celebrating the courage and just the, the masculine prowess of, of his characters. In another way, he's being very critical. But I think for most writers, the excitement of the, the ritualistic, dramatic moment comes first, and then a kind of ethical qualification comes second. Hmm. Well, do you think there probably weren't a whole lot of subscribers to The New Yorker in in Jackson at this time, but do you think someone who who had this view of life could read this story and believe that Welty was on his side? No, I don't think anyone who believed this view of life would subscribe to The New Yorker. (laughs) I think we could just make a blanket statement that anybody who was reading The New Yorker in Jackson at that time, uh, they they were not white racists. Well, the New Yorker published Shirley Jackson's famous story, The Lottery, in 1948, and that also had a kind of watershed effect. I think subscribers to The New Yorker wrote in angrily and and said they want the subscriptions discontinued. In both cases, so interesting that women were writing about very ordinary people in in small towns, one in New England and one, one in Mississippi, and just sort of illustrating something exemplary and terrible and, and, and mythic and legendary, like a fairy tale about their contemporaries. Thanks, Joyce. It's great talking to you. You can read stories and articles by Joyce Carol Oates on our website, newyorker.com. Her latest book of short stories, Dear Husband, comes out this spring. You can download many previous fiction podcasts at newyorker.com or in the iTunes store. Just type New Yorker into the search bar. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or Audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.